Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and today I'm talking to author Joe Cohane about his new book, The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. Joe's a journalist and editor, having worked for Esquire, New York Magazine, Thrillist, and Boston Magazine. This is his first book, and it's a tremendous mix of historical sociological research, his own personal adventures in talking to strangers, and storytelling that makes it quite an original, enriching, and funny read. Here's my conversation with Joe. Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with author Joe Cohane today. His new book, The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World, comes out on July 13th, and it is a fantastic read. I just finished reading it this morning, and I loved it. It is a, it is a, a terrific mixture of uh, sort of historical, sociological research, um, anecdotal storytelling and Joe's personal pursuit of the art of talking to strangers and uh, covers a lot of ground as uh, so a traveled the world and talked to a lot of people and uh, you know I, I have a feeling that when this comes out uh, it's going to be um, addressed as the perfect book for uh, exiting the pandemic and the lockdown um, Joe, I would uh, I would ask you, uh, how do you feel about that designation, and um, how did this book come about? Yeah, those are great questions. Uh, you know, first of all, I just want to thank you for your kind words, Wyndham. We've we've obviously known each other for a long time, and I know you as a man of taste and distinction. So uh, you know, it, it wasn't. Uh, I was a little anxious uh, as to whether or not you like it. You you. Oh fuck. Okay. Sorry, man. Um, I confess, I was a little, I was a little nervous about uh, whether or not you're going to like the book because I know you have a very discerning taste in books. So the fact that you like it, provided you're not lying to me, uh, definitely means a lot. So thanks for that. Um, well, it's I, it's yeah. a book that contains several of my favorite things: bonobo and chimps fucking and fighting, um, New Englanders being rude, and. Uh, German improv comedians. So um, if that doesn't sell it, I don't know what will. Right, yeah. No, that's, that's basically when marketing departments get together, they look for that trifecta. That's, that's what really moves <laughs> the units in this business. Um, as far as COVID, yeah, it's great. I mean, this wasn't the intention. Obviously, I did not foresee a giant pandemic hitting Earth um, when I pitched this book. But having been cooped up for like a year, you know, I, I went through COVID in New York City, which was a, a whole other thing. It's a whole other level of pandemic experience. But I really, really missed um, the sort of casual passing interactions with people that I came to love over the process of doing this book. Um, I talked to a lot of people for this book. I talked to a lot of experts, obviously, but I was just like shooting the shit with people in the street all the time with bartenders, with people in cafes. Like I just got really good at it and, uh, and I found it hugely enjoyable and edifying and just beneficial on a whole lot of levels. So when that whole category of human interaction just got taken away, it really sucked. I really felt it. I mean, on top of everything else, um, it was a bummer. So as I watched New York City reopening, as I watched America opening up again and, and hopefully more of the world opening up, 
um, I'm really excited about the possibility of, of just getting out there and doing this again. And I think, you know, one of the, this is very perverse to say, but like one of the real benefits of the pandemic is that it gave us a look at where society was heading, right? So for like, for years, we're being more, we're becoming more and more virtual, more digital, we're spending less time with people. Um, maybe our social skills are eroding. Like I talked to a lot of college professors who all complain that their, their students don't seem to know how to talk to people because they're so accustomed to talking, you know, carrying out all their conversations on digital platforms. Um, I think what the pandemic did was, does was it just accelerated that by 10 years. All of a sudden, after like a creep, sort of digital creep, where we're kind of withdrawing from each other, we're spending more time in our offices or in our houses and less time just kind of mixing in public. Um, shutting it down completely and moving everything online gives us the opportunity to understand what, where that was going, what the end, the end game was here. And it gives us a choice. It gives us a chance to ask whether or not we like this. Like, did you like living like this? Did you like never seeing anybody? Um, I sure, sure as hell didn't. I hated it. I hated every second of it. Um, so, yeah, timing-wise, I, I think what will be really cool about this book is that everybody is starved for social contact, I think. Everybody knows what they lost and what they were losing and what they lost. Um, and the book also, in addition to going through a lot of the science and the history and the kind of sociology um, of how we deal with strangers, it gives you like a pretty actionable plan for doing it. It's, it's almost like circuit training for, for like rebuilding yourself as a social individual, you know, from very easy to very difficult. Very difficult being like striking up a conversation on the, on the subway, which is like, mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of social norms surrounding talking to strangers. Verboten. That's like, that's the one. You don't talk to people on the subway. But, uh, yeah. but I'm here to tell you that I did it and I was not maimed or attacked or even rejected. And it was hilarious and funny and moving and great. Um, you know, your other story is where this, where this idea came from. Um, I had a conversation one night with a cab driver, um, and I was kind of showing some other writer friends. These were, they weren't journalists, they were screenwriters. But I was explaining, like, one of the real benefits to working in journalism, even as the industry collapses, is that it makes you pretty good about people, and it gives you, like, a certain amount of faith that if you really ask someone some questions, like, they'll surprise you. There'll be something pretty interesting there. So I was like, you know, for example... I'm going to talk to this cab driver. So we get to this, we get to this cab, and it's like four o'clock in the morning. We're coming back from a party, and uh, and I start talking to this woman. I'm kind of asking her how she ended up being a driver and how she ended up living in the place where we were and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and it ended up she just kind of unfurls this story. You know, I didn't have to do much prompting. She was clearly pretty happy just to tell the story. Um, and the story was she was raised by these sort of like what sounded like pretty horrible socialites in uh, in. I, I think, I think it was New York. Um, it was very late. York City. Stress again. It was very late at night. Um, and they went in for some crazy socialite fad where they decided to bind her calves because they felt that her calves were, like, unshapely and all the socialites wanted to have children with, like, better-looking calves, which is bananas. And so when they were doing it, um, they crippled her. Uh, they basically, like, retarded the growth of her leg, and to this day she has a limp. So, I, you know, I'm shocked to hear this. It's a horrifying idea. And so I was just saying, you know, did, were they, did they atone for it? Like, did they feel horrible? Like, I would feel horrible if I did that to my daughter, obviously, and I would expect most people would. I asked if they sent her to a specialist, anything like that. Um, and she says, no, they made me take dancing lessons. And I was like, oh, my God, why did they make you take dancing lessons? And she goes, because they wanted to teach me to fall down more gracefully. Uh, which is just such a great line. And, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time, and I, I definitely, I come from Boston, Massachusetts, which is a, a fairly dark-minded group of people, and, you know, I was raised by funeral directors, so that sort of thing is like catnip for me. Um, and I was, you know, Catholic, so fall down more gracefully. Like, there's basically one line definition of Catholicism. 
Um, <laughs> and I just loved it. So I, you know, I got back, um, I was, I was, you know, traveling when, when I had that conversation, I got back to New York and I just started thinking like, you know, I, I'm not even thinking, noticing that I wasn't really talking to strangers that much anymore. I, I feel like I used to do it a little more. Um, and I just kind of stopped, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. any interaction that used to, I used to have with strangers, I would do with my phone or I would just kind of shut it down. I'd go to a bar and like, look at my phone, which is just pathetic. And I didn't even enjoy it, you know? And, and over time, like I, I sort of became bad at it. And, and then when you become bad at it, you become kind of anxious about it. And, uh, and I wondered what had happened, what had happened to me. But then I also started wondering bigger questions, like why don't people talk to strangers? Like what, what are the factors that occur that make people talk to strangers versus make them not want to talk to strangers? Um, and that's where it all started. I went way deep, two million years to like the dawn of humanity. I ended up talking to, you know, evolutionary scientists and, and evolutionary psychologists and modern day psychologists and going through like reams of sociology research and, you know, field studies of traditional societies and how they dealt with strangers and all this other stuff. Um, but it ended up being incredible because it really, you know, I like the idea of asking a simple question and, and, and giving like a really complicated, or not a really complicated, but a really extensive answer to it, um, you know, to ask something like, why don't we talk to strangers and then answer it like comprehensively was a really fun challenge. And, uh, and yeah, it's kind of life changing for me. I mean, I, I just ended up talking to people a lot, but I ended up learning a lot about humans, about society and about how we connect with each other that I think is super useful and, and hopefully people will like it. Yeah, I can't imagine how difficult it is to condense um, the amount of research you did. I mean, it, literally, this thing spans from hunter-gatherers to, uh, you know, yesterday, basically. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's, it's incredibly expansive, and yet it is not a particularly, it's not a, it's a very enjoyable read. It's a very, uh, it zips along and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of it, a lot of the entertainment value obviously comes from your anecdotal pieces about learning to talk to strangers or actually challenging yourself to, uh, you know, to do that, to learn that skill again, but also just a collection of characters along the way. I mean, I, I can, you know, think of a handful, uh, right off the top of my head, but, you know, people like Thomas Knox stand out and, um, you know, the, this, I don't know, I, I guess I'll just, I'll leave it to you to, to sort of explain your process, but how did you identify and select, um, uh, the locations and the, uh, the, the groups and the, the individuals that, that kind of to shape the, the anecdotal pieces and the research pieces of this book from yeah. your perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, to your, to your initial point, I definitely worked really hard to keep it from becoming like a nightmare, um, super <laughs> dense, you know, like there's so much data in it that mm-hmm, I wanted is. it to feel like a conversation. I wanted it to feel like a really good barroom conversation, to be honest, with somebody smart. Um, hopefully I come across as smart, but, um, but like making it breezy, like using storytelling, using color, using like wisecracks and stuff like that, just to make it really entertaining. Um, cause otherwise like this thing would have been death. It would have been a doorstop. I mean, I had to fight to keep it from being like 2000 pages long, given all the shit mm-hmm. I got for it. Um, but it, you know, a key part of that is just finding people. Like I wanted to have color. Um, I wanted to have like voices, um, and I wanted to have story in it. Um, and I also wanted it to not just be me, you know, if it's just me and I'm a, a straight white guy and I'm out in the world just being like generalizing my experience, I'm just saying like talking to strangers is amazing. This is how it worked for me. This is how it's going to work for you. Like, you know, that's not really going to be 
it's not going to be universal. Like everybody's experience is going to be different depending on who you are, what your personality is, like what your race is, what your class is. All this stuff changes the kind of nature of these interactions. So I wanted to get a lot of different types of people in there too. Um, you know, Tom Thomas Knox is is uh, brilliant and awesome, and I love that guy. He got a little bit of newspaper coverage for doing this thing, Date While You Wait, where one day, for reasons he still can't even explain to me, um, he just set up a table with a bouquet of flowers and a Connect Four board and the subway on a subway platform, and he just like put down two chairs and sat there and invited people to talk to him, uh, which is like, you know, for most people, that's a horrifying prospect. Um, you're so exposed, you're so vulnerable, and there is this belief that, you know, you do not talk to people on the subway, not on the platform, not in the cars. Uh, but it worked incredibly well. People were really curious because it was so unusual. And he's such a great talker and he's such a good guy that um, they loved it. And they would kind of tell him their story and he would just listen and ask questions and maybe give him a flower. Um, and it was so unusual that he got press coverage. The papers covered him a little bit. So that's how I met Tom. But some of these were just flukes. Um, um, so there's this, this one woman I met, um, Uli Boitler-Cohen, who runs an organization called Subway Book Review, which is where it's, it's on Instagram. She goes in the subway and she interviews people about the books that they're reading. Um, and it's, you know, it's amazing. It's great. It's, she's, she's, does great work. You know, the people she ends up talking to are really interesting. But I met her through a total fluke thing where I was walking down the street one day and I saw a woman carrying a bag that said, ask me what I'm reading. Um, I might not be getting mm -hmm. that exactly right, but something along those lines. And, you know, no, at this was, point, like, I was, I, was, I was dialed in. I was talking to people all the time, so I was pretty unabashed about just approaching people and asking them questions. And so I kind of went over to her, and I was like, you know, excuse me. Um, you know, I, I know this is going to sound weird, but, like, I saw your bag, and I was wondering, does it work? Do people ask you what you're reading? And she's like, yeah, it's amazing. People come up to me all the time. It works great. And so I asked her where she got it, and she got it from this woman, Uli Boitler-Cohen's organization. Um, so then I had a conversation with Uli, and she's brilliant. She's got a book coming out later this year. Um, and it ended up being a key part of the book. But it, was, it only happened because I was paying attention. Like, I was walking around. Mm -hmm. I was kind of looking at people, which is a key part of doing this stuff. Um, and I met this woman who turned me on to this, and, and it was amazing. And so I had a great conversation with Uli. And, um, and afterwards, I went down to the subway, and there was a guy standing there with a T-shirt saying, I talk to strangers. <laughs> so I went over, I was like, do you? He's like, yeah, sure, that's why I have the T-shirt on. So you get like this weird mojo happens, you know, you give out this kind of, you know, I'm not the type of guy to, to talk about like giving off energy or anything, but like it's kind of undeniable when you do this. Um, it's crazy how, how magnetic you become. Like uh, people really are really drawn to you. Um, yeah, I think it, you were talking about actually, I mean, it goes deep enough uh, and I and to uh, include the sort of brain chemistry around, uh, you know, what, what is fed um, in the brain by, by doing this. I, I mean, we will we'll make the chemical conversation re relatively short since we're neither, neither of us are scientists, but it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It, it, um, you know, there's a lot of research today into what happens when we talk to strangers. Um, you know, it's only been happening over the last 10 or 15 years or so, but it's a growing body of research um, by, by some very good people that keeps finding um, that when we talk to strangers, even if it's like a passing interaction with a barista at your coffee shop or something, um, it's really beneficial. So, you know, something like a little, a pleasant little exchange, even something that minor can make people feel less lonely. It can make them feel more connected to the places where they live. It can make them feel happier. It can make them feel healthier. Um, and you know, better conversations that go might be a little more profound or a little more meaningful just to have carry deeper benefits. 
Um, you know, there's, there's a really interesting body of research called contact theory about what happens when we have interactions with people who are from different groups than we are. So, you know, for me to talk to, like, another Irish Catholic idiot from Boston is, like, that's one, one like, dimension of talking to a stranger. For me to talk to someone who's, like, a different race from a different culture, like, that's more challenging, right? And it might be more anxiety-producing for me. Um, but when you do it, um, a pretty substantial body of research finds that it ends up being a hedge against prejudice. So, you know, I have a good conversation with, say, say I'm prejudiced against Italians, right, or something like that, and I have a, I have a great exchange with an Italian. Um, from that point on, most likely, every time someone's just like trashes Italians, I'm going to think of that guy that I had the good conversation with, you know? It's like these people kind of take up residence in your head and they kind of form a natural hedge against um, your prejudice getting out of control. Because I think a lot of the time um, when prejudice gets really out of control, it's for like lack of, of positive personal experience with people. Yeah. Because uh, then you can just come I up with like a fictitious version of who they are and get really upset about it, which, which happens obviously yeah. quite a bit. And as long as you're isolated, it can, it can remain true. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're never challenged. So yeah, that's the thing. It's, it can be difficult to have these conversations because it forces you to reckon with the kind of complexity of life and the variety of life in the world, the variety of human experience, um, which can be difficult because we all make assumptions based on our own experience. Um, but when you get past that, it's hugely rewarding. I mean, it just it kind of makes you a wiser and, and kind of smarter and better person and a probably more effective participant in democracy. Well, I think, um, you know, the, the locations were curious to me because I'm familiar with a lot of them. Um, you know, one of the things, and I'll try and uh, um, drop a little bit of information and, and then form it into a question for you, but, um, you know, you interacted with these volunteer listeners in Los Angeles. Um, you know, you and I both going back and forth to Los Angeles a fair amount. I find that when I come back from Los Angeles to Boston, I have to re-remember how not to say hello to people. Um, because I find people in LA to be very open and very easy to talk to. And then I get back to Boston and, and, you know, there's that whole, uh, people from Boston will recognize this, the sort of diverting of the eyes when you walk past somebody, um, head down. And, um, you took it one step further and actually went to London, which is, uh, you know, makes Bostonians seem gregarious, um, and took a course on uh, talking to strangers. So uh, given those three locations, uh, I'll let you do the, uh, the beadwork and, and um, sort of the, you know, what took you to all three places. Yeah, culturally, Boston and London are, are pretty similar, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, my buddy has a theory about Boston. The reason why Bostonians are so, like, aggressively unpleasant so often is because it's a combination of terrible weather and narrow sidewalks. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody's always bumping into each other. Everyone's at each other's way, and the weather sucks, and it makes them mean. Um, I think there's like Sounds an like element. Of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the cowpath city. Um, there's an element of that, and there's an element of like rigid class boundaries and stuff like that in Boston that definitely feed into that, and and, and a history of uh, you know racism um, feeds into that, and all kinds of other stuff because it's kind of provincial, and there's a distrust of outsiders. Um, so, yeah, when people ask me, like, what's a friendly place and what's an unfriendly place, I was, I'm always just like, you know, Boston's my hometown and I love it, but uh, it's definitely the most, one of the most unfriendly places I've ever lived, and I'm one of them, you mm -hmm. know. Um, L.A. is obviously different. L.A. Is, is much more open. The weather is nicer. People tend to be friendlier, you know. Um, people tend to not be from there. And I find that with my friends in Boston. Most of my friends in Boston are transplants. Yeah, a lot of transplants, yeah. Yeah, so I, I ended up going to L.A. because there was this organization called Urban Confessional, um, run by this guy, Ben Mathis, who's a, who's a working actor, but, you know, one day he started talking to strangers, and he was like, this is, this is pretty amazing. And what Urban Confessionals does is it practices something called free listening, 
which is when you literally just stand on a street corner with a sign that says free listening, uh, and you wait for people to come over and talk to you, right? So very uncomfortable, you know, you're super vulnerable, you feel like an idiot, um, it's hard to do. But I was really interested in like how he did it and how it worked and, and what kind of response it had from people doing the speaking, but also the people doing the listening and just try to gain some insights into how to get good at talking to strangers based on this. Um, so I went out with Ben and I spent, spent a morning with him doing the free listening. Uh, and it was incredible. People just came right up to you and after like being a little suspicious at first, they would get a little more comfortable and they would start telling their stories. And their stories were great. You know, they were just, they, they, it would just be an outpouring. And you'd, you'd think, I think the cynical take would be, you're going to attract a certain kind of overshare uh, and they're just going to bore you to death. But it really wasn't the case. I mean, these stories were pretty profound. They were pretty great. Um, and it was fun. It was uncomfortable. And, you know, I found it a little stressful at first, but, uh, but it worked really well. And Mathis's idea is anytime you're talking to a stranger um, or listening to a stranger, you follow the 80-20 rule, which is you only talk about yourself 20% of the time. Um, and that you can actually do all the time. I mean, um, if someone works in business, someone works in politics, like following that rule is actually really useful when you're speaking to someone for the first time because when you're listening, it makes them like you a little more, it makes them trust you a little more, it makes them feel a little more comfortable talking to you because you're not just like Bigfoot in the conversation. Um, and you can share a little bit of yourself just to show them that you're like, you know, it's not just you extracting material from them, like you're both in it. And then when the conversation gets better, you can talk more about yourself. But it's a really effective way to just start a conversation. Um, so I did it. Yeah, I did it in L.A., and, and it was great. Um, but I wanted to also, I wanted to get a better understanding of, like, every little part of these exchanges, right? Because we think, you would think that talking to a stranger is going to be a, a relatively simple deal. But there's so many moving parts. There's so many considerations. Um, and so I wanted to find someone who's going to, like, teach me how to do it on a molecular level. Um, you know, there was the, one of the main sources for the book is a, name, a woman named Gillian Sandstrom at the University of Essex, and she introduced me to a woman named Georgie Nightingale in London. And Georgie runs a group called Trigger Conversations, which holds, like, conversational events, but she also does kind of personal developments, um, programming and stuff like that, classes. And, and uh, I got in touch with her, and she told me she was going to do a class on talking to strangers. And so I said, you know, can I mind if I tag along? I'll fly out and do it. And so I did it, and uh, and it was great. It was great to do it in London because I think if you did a class on talking to strangers in like the Midwest or a place where that's more the culture, you know, the the South mm -hmm. to an extent, um, it would have been different because it would have been, you know, you you don't... talking to strangers in London is a problem that needs to be solved. Yeah, and you have to be. It can't be done lightly. You really need, you know. It, I always use this metaphor, but um, it's like how great tennis coaches are always, are, are never good tennis players, because um, they need to learn every bit of the mechanics in order to, like they need to consciously learn, whereas mm -hmm. a great tennis player is just probably a great tennis player. So, you know, when you go into a, a place like London that's, that's pretty chilly socially and, and can be kind of hostile to these ideas, um, you really need to understand what you're doing, you know? I, it's not just like walking into a restaurant in South Carolina and everyone's just talking to each other. Like, there's a degree of difficulty and you have to, you have, to have the skills down. Um, so doing it in London ended up being great um, because it was just, you had to be very mindful of all of these moving parts. Uh, it was fun for me too. You know, I had a bit of an advantage because I'm like a Yankee. Um, mm -hmm. And so being in London, like people forgive me for talking to someone like on the tube because I'm an out of town. You don't have any manners. Well, that, yeah, that, or I just don't know. I'm just like a, you know, a rube from America who doesn't rube. know the rules, yeah. you know? Um, so it was easier to break through because people I think are a little more forgiving when like tourists talk to them than they would be if it was like, if I was like a Londoner doing it. Uh, because tourists yeah. aren't really expected to know the social norms regarding these sorts of interactions, you know. 
Um, so it was great. Yeah, great place to learn. And uh, and the the advice she had was great. The the course was great. I ended up taking a lot of what she taught me, and tried it out in the streets uh, in London and New York and, and Finland and all over the place. And uh, and I found it hugely effective. I think I think she's like, she's a genius with this stuff. Well, I thought I found that part to be very interesting as well. Having um, just before the pandemic gone to Scandinavia for the first time, um, you know, you have this sort of paradoxical piece about. Um, people from the most homogeneous countries being the least friendly, uh, where you'd think that because they're similar, they would there would be a comfort there. But you, you know, you come up with this. You know, you you sort of learn that uh, over the course of your research that um, Scandinavian countries tend to be the least outgoing, and places that are kind of famously tumultuous, like the Middle East, tend to be the most um, outgoing to strangers. Uh, tell us a little about that. Yeah, I love that stuff. Because uh, you would think that places, if you're looking for cultures where people talk to strangers, you would think that it would be places that like trust that strangers aren't going to kill them. Uh, and it's actually mm-hmm. kind of the opposite. Um, what I realized while doing this book is that when places are friendly, it's often they're often friendly not because they love people, but because they're ambivalent to people. Um, they need to connect with people, they need to work with people, but they also need to establish that people aren't a threat and they need to convey the, the fact that they're not a threat either. And that's where like Disarm politeness them. comes from. Yeah, it's amazing. And so you go to like, you know, I talked to a Mexican sociologist who talked about this a lot and she was just like, you know, people in Mexico are, tend to be much more friendly than people in Norway. And the reason why is because you just need help in Mexico, right? You can't really rely on the cops so much. There aren't a lot of strong central institutions. There's a lot of corruption. Um, so in order to get stuff done, like you often need to ask for directions. You need to help. Need to ask someone for help with paperwork at a government agency. Like all this stuff, you need to be social. Whereas in a place like Norway or Finland, where I ended up, um, the central institutions, the government's so strong and takes care of so much that there's no need for people to socialize with strangers. All right. And you see, I saw this again and again and again. A lot of places with like really strong traditions of hospitality are places that don't have really strong traditions of like good governance. Um, mm-hmm. People are friendly. People are social as a result, as a response to friction and threat. Um, they're not social necessarily because they think people are trustworthy. And so you end up just getting very different societies. So you go to Scandinavia, which is like, you know, low violence. They're prosperous. They're well run. No one ever really needs to talk to anybody else. Um, to get by, well, I can, you, I don't, t- you know, like I, I go to Finland and I don't have to be like, oh, I, you know, I'm walking down the street. I, I, sh- I have to interact with this guy to make sure that he's not a threat to me and I'm not a threat to him um, because no one's really, you know, no one's really a threat. Yeah. Um, well, and I, so I can tell you can, anecdotally that yeah. you, you land at the airport in those places and you know instinctively where to go. It's not even instinctively. It's, it's just it's just well marked and it's obvious and the train's going to be on time. That's, a, that's actually a great point. That design is so good, right? Like government design work in, uh, in Scandinavian countries is so good and so clear what you have to do and where you're going to be going. I mean, they're just phenomenally well run. I mean, they're hugely successful societies and they're great. I'm not, I'm not dumping on them or anything. But, um, but because they're not, people aren't, they don't have to be social on a regular basis, it tends to make for a really introverted society. Um, whereas you go to like Brazil, Brazil is going to be much more extroverted. Um, a lot of places that have histories of kind of like, you know, they're sort of tumultuous places or they had huge flows of people going through them or, or like histories of lots of immigration coming from other places. Places that experience that kind of stress um, often have cultures with greater politeness and friendliness than places that are just like smooth running all the time. Um, so Helsinki was hilarious. When I was in Helsinki, I just felt like I was screaming at people all the time. They were so <laughs> quiet. They were great. You know, I loved it. I had a, Helsinki's a great city. Um, and the people were wonderful. And I, you know, I spent, I don't know, 
know, a week there or something. Um, but they're very quiet, you know, and, uh, and they don't, they don't, they're not like active in terms of talking, you know, um, they don't like when, when you have a conversation in New York with someone, like people are showing a little bit of themselves. They're a little proactive. Mm -hmm. You're like, you're trying to find common ground because this is just what life is living in a place where there are just lots of different types of people. You need to find a way to connect. You need to find some kind of commonality. But when you're in Finland, yeah, I mean, the commonality is the fact that you're all Finns. Um, you're all, you know, sort of sort of similar culturally. Um, but what's really interesting is that Finland, like all of Scandinavia, is just getting a huge influx of refugees now. And right. because they don't have those kind of like freestyle social skills, um, it's, it's, becoming, it's putting a lot of stress on society. They're not used to dealing with people who are from different cultures. If a bunch of refugees came to New York, like... There would be, you know, there'd be problems of racism and there'd be economic problems. But like day to day, um, people are equipped to deal with like a bunch of people who came here from Syria because there are already a bunch of people here from Syria who you, you, you right. always there's end up having to talk to and stuff. You know, we, we know how to do it. Um, so, yeah, Finland and the, the Scandinavian countries are having crises because now there are millions of people in their societies that um, they just don't know how to talk to. So when I was, I ended up going there because there was a guy named Theodore Zeldin, who's an English historian, legendary English historian, awesome guy about 91 or 92 now. But he, st he started these, this series of events called, um, they're like Oxford Conversation Dinners. And there would be huge gatherings of strangers. You'd be paired with a stranger and you'd be given a menu of conversation topics. And you would have a two hour conversation with somebody you didn't know. And it, it would be intense, it would be personal, but you know, it's transformative. A lot of the people who have done these things, you know, especially if they're talking to someone from a different culture, it's transformative to them. It's really eye-opening, it's really enjoyable. Um, it's difficult. It's great. So Zeldin wanted to go to Finland because, number one, Finland is like, you know, a bastion of democracy in a lot of ways, a really stable country. But also they're starting to have trouble. And a lot of the trouble they're having is because there's like this huge influx of strangers. So he wanted to go over there and like teach the Finns how to talk to strangers. Uh, and I got to ride along with him. I got to watch him do it. I got to participate in these events. Uh, it was super cool. It was, it was really great. Um, but clearly, like, this, this is a skill that needs to happen. Like, you can't you can't necessarily be a completely introverted and homogeneous culture um, at a time when there's like huge mixing and huge migrations of like foreign populations. You have to learn how to do this stuff. So the cool thing is if, if you live in a place like that and your, your society's under stress, like you can read this book and it'll give you some tips on like how to have those conversations, how to connect with these people. Um, because without that, you know, these societies are gonna fracture. Yeah, there's some other really fascinating, I mean, you go to the far reaches of the world, uh, you know, with. Uh, your research into this, I, I may not pronounce this correctly, the Semi mm -hmm. in, uh, um, in the Far East and then um, the, uh, the uh, desert tribes in, in, um, in Africa as well. But the Semi struck me as very interesting because uh, I, I think it's safe to say they're the most xenophobic people in the world. They're, they're brought up on a culture of fear. Yeah, they are... You know, there's a, the Samai are in Malaysia, and their culture is like stranger danger culture, right? So the, the reason I think they were studied pretty extensively is because people became a little concerned at like stranger danger messaging in the U.S. and what it was doing to the culture. So the, the Samai had dealt with a lot of persecution, a lot of oppression, a lot of violence um, at the hands of the Malays historically over the last, you know, 200 years or something. And so they had to be very, very careful. Like, they were, they were a, a profoundly oppressed and mistreated minority. And the fear of the Malays, the, the fear of, like, 
people coming into the village and hurting them and taking their children away generalized into like the culture. So it wasn't just like be careful around Malays. It started to inform like their mythology about themselves, their beliefs about the supernatural. They started to believe that um, there are like stranger winds, which are bad winds. There are stranger tigers that, which are like tigers that come to you in dreams that could hurt you, and you need to get like a different kind of dream tiger to counteract the, the stranger tiger and all this stuff. Um, but people would come to the village and they would, um, you know, according to some of the eth- ethnographies I read, they would just yell, afraid, afraid, and they would like run away <laughs> from the people because they were like every time for a hundred years, every time someone showed up, it was, it was very bad news, you know, it didn't go, didn't go well for them. But the threat is lifted, but the culture remains. It's still a really skittish <laughs> culture. Um, they're not violent, they're nonviolent, they're famously pacifist, so it's not like they kill anyone who comes over, but they're just, this is their response, um, and it's a response to centuries of trauma. Um, you know, and we, we definitely see a bit of that in the idea of stranger danger in the U.S., where generations of kids were raised to believe that literally everyone they didn't know posed a threat. Um, and there's some research that shows that it, that, like, warped younger generations' ability to trust other people, which is really bad. You know, societies need trust in order to function smoothly. Um, I, it, I think it's interesting because I, you know, being, I think, about eight or nine years older than you, um, grew up in that completely unattended uh, or sort of, you know, uh, you know, my t- my generation was sort of, you know, able to roam freely and uh, without the prospect of danger. And we were the people that actually got abducted by the people in the vans. And you were the people that, that were taught stranger danger. Um, you're the sort of post-Adam Walsh generation. Um, and so it's curious. And, you know, my again, you know, this is brother, brother, brother. This is my two brother. I have one brother who's Joe's age and one brother who's 20 years younger. And they were raised on this sort of uh, notion of stranger danger. And I was surprised to read in the book that that's actually been kind of rescinded. Yeah. The problem is it's it's bullshit. So it's funny because I talked to Cal Walsh, who is Adam Walsh's brother. Adam Walsh was the son of John Walsh. Um, who was abducted and murdered, and John Walsh ended up being on America's Most Wanted, and he started a, actually what is a really valuable organization called the National Center for Abducted and Ex- Exploited Children, Missing and Exploited Children, and Cal works works at the center. Um, they use stranger danger for a long time, but like I said, there's evidence that it's actually really bad to convince children that everybody they don't know is a threat to them because, like, you know, if you're in trouble, it's going to be a stranger that's most likely going to help you. But also, the data doesn't bear any of this stuff out. So, you know, you're actually more likely to be killed by... uh, It depends on the year, but it's pretty comparable, your chances of getting killed by a stranger versus being killed by your own parents. Like, it's it's not a huge threat. You know, most of the murdering is done... Murdering and sexual assaults and and felony assault, um, those are done by people we know. Right, because they, I'm sure we have, some, we can have a problem with them. Whereas, like me walking down the street past somebody, the person probably doesn't have a great reason to attack me, unless the person's like a drug addict or, or you know, unstable in some way. Mentally. But that's the thing. Like the real problem was like relatives. The real problem was former lovers and romantic partners. Those are the people who do the damage. So the idea that you're protecting children by poisoning their minds against strangers, when in reality the real threat is coming from people they know. Um, is, is pretty bad. It's pretty bad for a society. Um, and also, it, it makes kids, like, really defenseless in a way. Um, it, it, they don't have any options if they're in trouble, and then they just, they're told to blindly trust everyone they know when those people can be the real threat, like, ironically. And maybe the reason why stranger danger caught on so well is because we, it's just too complicated an idea to process that, like, the real threat to children is, like, us. You know, it's the people who know them, people who know the children. 
Um, it's uncles. It's it's that sort of thing. Um, but the stuff, you know, the stupid thing rhymed, and it was very catchy. And so as a result, for like decades, children were just getting visits from like cops in their schoolrooms talking about like how someone's going to, you know, if you let your guard down, you're going to get thrown in a van and chopped up somewhere. Uh, there's just very little statistical basis for that stuff. Um, and it's bad because, like I say in the book, there's a tremendous upside to talking to strangers, not when you're like six years old, but, you know, learning to do it as you get older, doing it as an adult. Um, the idea that it's dangerous to do that is actually, I think, pretty harmful for society. Well, two things I wanted to, to uh, touch on before we wrap up. One is uh, um, the advent of tech. And, you know, I actually, uh, you know, I'm not sure um, if, if you've been asked this question, but how do you think the stranger danger, um, because it was so, you know, so widely demagogued, how do you think that has, you know, sort of led into the isolation that comes with tech um, and also, um, you know, the sort of, uh, uh, you know, the, the prospects of, of, of tech? A, is, as it keeps people isolated, but also B, as it gives people access anonymously. Yeah, I think, you know, where tech overlaps with stranger danger is that it's just safer to have a phone. You know, so if you're out late at night, you have a phone that could potentially deter crime. It could potentially like make it easier for you to get help. Um, so that actually helps um, if you're actually in a, in a situation where there is danger. I think a lot of why people turn to phones is because it's easier. Um, you know, I talk about this a lot in the book, but it can be difficult to have a conversation with a stranger. It's kind of demanding. You have to pay attention. You have to listen. You have to watch body language, like all this stuff. You have no frame of reference. So you have to like really pay attention in order to and you don't know where the conversation is going to go. Um, when you're on your phone, you have control of all interactions. Um, you can just kind of mindlessly consume whatever you're reading. Um, but it's easy, right? It's much easier than the prospect of talking to a stranger. Um, a lot of the people I talk to seem to think that, you know, that over-reliance on digital communication eroded the communication skills of young people, but I think it did it to everybody in a, in a lot of ways. I think a lot of people are just, like, daunted by the prospect of talking to a stranger, so they just turn on the phone because it makes them anxious, the idea of, like, someone talking mm -hmm. to them. You know, Joaquin Simo. I don't know if you've have you ever been to Pouring Ribbons in New York, the bar. Which one? Pouring Ribbons. No, I don't. Believe oh, it's so. great. So it's a great bar, and the guy who owns it is this kind of legendary mixologist named Joaquin Simo, who's a great talker, a lot of fun. But he was complaining that you know he's been in the bar business for twenty years, and when he got into it, people would go to bars to meet people, and now they go to bars and they sit at the bar and they stare at their phones, and like no one talks to anybody, and it drives them crazy. Hundred percent. Yeah. So, you know, part of that is because they've become anxious at the prospect of talking to other people. They might have been poisoned against strangers by stranger danger propaganda. Like, that's people have, have, have made that argument before. Um, but I think a lot of it is they just don't know how to do it. Um, a lot of the psychologists I talked to all echoed this, and they were just like, it's amazing to me how hard it is for these kids to talk to each other um, because they just haven't worked those muscles. They're out of shape. They're, you know, they're, they're not... They're social, they're hyper-social in some ways, which is digital, and they're, they're arguably much better at that stuff than I am, and that stuff is important, it's valuable. Um, but they're really bad at in-person communications. So all that stuff kind of com conspired to create the situation where, you know, like I was thinking about it the other day, you look down a bar. I always sit on the corner when I go to bars because I like the corner seat mainly because I like to talk Me to too. people. But um, you can look down and you just see a row of people with like their faces bathed in the blue glow of their iPhones. Uh, and they're not talking to each other. And if you, you know, sometimes you try to talk to them and they're like alarmed, just like, what, what is this? What's happening here? Um, young people, especially, I find older people are much easier to do this with. But, um, but I've also found that once you kind of break through, um, everybody seems to enjoy it. Everybody seems to get into it. You know, they like talking about 
what they're thinking, what their thoughts are, what their lives are, all that stuff. And, um, and I think it's super valuable for someone like me, I'm 43 years old, to talk to young people so I don't turn into one of those cranks that's just like, young people today are all weak and you know, like we were um, gathering good data on the younger generation I think is very valuable for understanding like what, what the country is that we live in and what the future is going to look like. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, no, technology, I mean for me I think technology is the reason why I stopped doing it because uh, I was so tired. I had a young kid, I had a demanding job and you know I didn't go out as much as I used to, not by a long shot. And when I did, when I did have a crack of time to go grab a drink at a bar, um, I would just look at my phone because I was just out of practice. You know, everything I did, mm -hmm. I'd go to CVS and I'd go to like the kiosk instead of the person. Like it just, it became really weird and I felt really weird about it. Um, and I think a lot of it was just being tired and overtaxed and a lot of it was just technology. So I had to, I had to break through that, put the phone away um, and just seek out human interaction, even in passing, even simple little things. And, and I found it great. I found, you know, I thought it was transformative. But one of the one of the other uh, really funny, interesting paradoxes I, I saw you point out, and and I think we'll end on this because it, it takes us to our current moment. But um, you know, I, I had jokingly said that um, you know I worried about my parents during COVID nineteen because I think they were somehow convinced that they couldn't catch it from anybody that they liked, um, and so you know the the focus became on avoiding strangers and you know, sort of locking into a bubble of people you know. Not that that was going to keep you safe, but it was, a, you know, it was obviously a misconception, but it was kind of a universal misconception, especially among older people. Um, and you, you, you know, I think, uh, you know, this book and, and your research, you know, with that having been said, how do we now go back into the world and, and start talking to strangers again? Yeah, it's tough. It's a, there's a lot of stuff to get over. It's our, it's, it was already anxiety producing for people, and now there's this whole other level of it. Um, worrying about how a stranger is diseased, which actually is a common thread in a lot of the anthropological literature um, that sometimes, you know, in, in kind of traditional society, strangers really would be diseased. You know, like the, the Europeans who came to America were certainly diseased, and they wiped out a big chunk of the indigenous population as a result of it. People coming from different places could have pathogens, right? So cultures mm -hmm. would form around avoiding strangers because they might be carrying a disease, and sometimes they did. But then that kind of turned into this um, mechanism whereby we just we kind of associate strangers with disease and uncleanliness sometimes, um, to varying degrees. Sometimes it's it's just like kind of a mild concern. Sometimes it's like full on crazy uh, and dangerous and leads to violence and exclusion and things like that. Um, so I would say respond to the data. You know, like you're not free of threat from COVID at this point. If you're, if you're um, vaccinated, then great, you're, you're probably safe. But you do have to be mindful of the fact that like, you've spent a year being afraid of strangers because they might be disease carriers. And uh, you're going to have to reckon with that a little bit. You, know, you might have to get past that. I think for me, because I'm, I tend to be pretty social, um, I got over that pretty quick just because I so desperately wanted to be in public again. Um, mm -hmm. And also just because I tried, you know, I, I was aware that humans have a tendency to like, make that connection between disease and strangers. So like, you know, my, my train of thought didn't fly off the tracks like a lot of people did. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is one of the things that you're going to have to deal with. I mean, you're also going to have to deal with the fact that there's a lot of um, friction between groups right now, between different ideological groups, different racial groups. Um, there's a lot of stress um, surrounding interactions with people who are different than we are. So you're going to have to deal with that too. And people feel that, you know, that's universal. You shouldn't feel bad if you feel a little uncomfortable talking to someone from a different group because you're afraid you're going to say the wrong thing or they're not going to like you or you don't know how to do it or you don't think you're going to be able to connect on anything or have any common ground. 
Um, that's pretty universal too. It's called intergroup anxiety. It's been studied, studied at length. Um, so go in there, you know, as you're going back out there, expect to have to, you know, learn to ride a bike again a little bit. Expect a little bit of anxiety yeah. and know that it's completely normal to feel that anxiety, especially after coming out of like a mass trauma like we have over the last year. And then, um, and then just get into it, you know. If you're, you know, you can't just like intercept someone like rushing for a train or something. But if you're sitting with someone and that you're looking at something together, like a street performer or there's something interesting happening, you can comment on it and see what they say. And then just, you know, you'll watch, once you get past the anxiety, you'll notice that it's just, it's pretty easy. You know, I've found people are remarkably receptive and open and funny and interesting and smart. Uh, there's been a lot of studies on like whether or not it's common to be rejected by strangers when you chat them up. And, and for the most part, the threat of rejection seems to be pretty small. Um, again, you know, this is this is my experience. This is the experience of a lot of people. It would be different if I was a gay man in a, in a super homophobic culture or something like that. It's much more complicated for people, for many people than it is for me. Um, but, you know, I talk to a lot of people of different colors, different races, different ethnicities um, in the book. And, and the consensus seems to be, like, once you get past that initial anxiety, the, the world is kind of your oyster. You know, it's really easy to connect. Um, and it's beneficial and it's fun and it's great. So, yeah, I would say... Get out there, enjoy it. Don't worry if you feel a little anxious. Don't worry if you feel a little ham-handed at first. You know, we all feel that way. Um, but I think you'll, you'll settle into it pretty quickly. Well, that is a ending on a positive note. Uh, the book is called The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. And it's by Joe Cohane, who is a very talented and funny writer. So uh, check it out and buy it on July 13th when it comes out. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, man. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.